You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. OpenSSL is patched today. The misconfiguration risk to U.S. government network security and compliance. Hacking mistrusts phone. Assistance for Ukraine's cyber defense. Joe Kerrigan looks at the latest round of apps pulled from the Google Play Store. Our guest is Matthias Madao of Secure Code Warrior on why cultivating a positive culture among security and developer teams continues to fall short. And a quick look at DNS threats. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, November 1st, 2022. Today, November 1st, OpenSSL is releasing a patch for a critical vulnerability in OpenSSL versions 3.0 and above. OpenSSL appears widely throughout the software supply chain, and a number of experts are comparing the vulnerability, which is rated critical, to Log4Shell and Heartbleed, both of which affected a wide range of products and their users. While the OpenSSL project hasn't released details about the flaw, Akamai notes that observers are taking it very seriously due to the rarity of a critical flaw in OpenSSL. Akamai sees an analogy with Heartbleed, stating, This vulnerability has caused concern in the security community because it is unusual for the OpenSSL team to rate a vulnerability as critical. There has only been one in the past, in 2014, Heartbleed. When exploited, Heartbleed led to a memory leak from the server to the client or the other way around. Researchers at Nucleus point out that while the vulnerability may be severe, The threat may not be as widespread as some headlines suggest, since most organizations are still running OpenSSL versions 1 or 2. And, as is so often the case with patches, one can expect threat actors to step up exploitation as they too become aware of the issue, and before users apply upgrades and mitigations. So, look for vulnerability instances and get patching. Misconfiguration remains a source of trouble for organizations of all kinds, and the U.S. federal government would seem to be not that different from the rest of us. Titania has released a study on U.S. federal security practices titled The Impact of Exploitable Misconfigurations on the Security of Agencies' Networks and Current Approaches to Mitigating Risks in the U.S. Federal Government. The research shows that Network Professionals Report that they're meeting their security and compliance requirements, 
But the data suggests that this self-reporting is optimistic. Federal agencies have a larger number of devices on their network, with over 1,000 on average. 59% of respondents say that they assess the configuration of network devices every year, with 12% doing it on a bi-monthly cycle. 71% report the effectiveness of their network security tools in categorizing and prioritizing compliance risks, which contrasts with the 81% of respondents that reported that the inability to prioritize remediation based on risk is a top issue. Respondents reported an average of 51 misconfigurations in the past year, with 83% reporting at least one critical configuration issue in the past two years. Turning to the hybrid war Russia is waging against Ukraine and the cyber espionage that surrounds it, Moscow has dismissed reports that its intelligence services hacked former British Prime Minister Liz Truss's phone while she served as foreign secretary in her predecessor's government. Reuters reports that Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov dismissed the incident as Fleet Street sensationalist nonsense. Mr. Peskov said, Unfortunately, there is a shortage of material in the British media that can be perceived as serious, and we treat such publications as the yellow press. The possibility of Russian cyber espionage isn't, however, being taken lightly in the UK, where, according to The Independent, Tories have joined the opposition MPs in calling for a full investigation of the incident. There are other issues tangential to the possible compromise of Miss Truss's phone by spyware that are also arousing concern over in the UK. They notably include the tendency of officeholders to handle official information on personal devices. Soella Braverman, who had been Home Secretary in the Truss government before her resignation two weeks ago, admitted to sending a small number of official documents to her personal email, the Telegraph reports. She says the material wasn't sensitive and posed no security risk. The personal is the political, as the new left used to say, but really it's not a good maxim for cyberspace. Sure, officeholder, Mr. and Ms. government official, you've got your own email and your own stuff at home, and you've maybe got a life outside work too, for all we know. But official business shouldn't wind up commingled with that life. Reserve those personal systems for arranging to test your dog's ancestry with a convenient DNA swab or for buying tickets to the game or... Oh, you get the picture. It's like Vegas. As the Rat Pack might tell you, what goes on in the government network should stay in the government network. The BBC reports that the British government has revealed the extent of cyber assistance it's rendered Ukraine. Aid amounting to some £6 million has been delivered. In the course of discussing the assistance, the government offered a brief appreciation of the state of cyber conflict in Russia's hybrid war. In brief, cyberspace remains heavily contested, even as waves of Russian cyber attacks have not achieved the disruption widely expected at the beginning of the war. Foreign Secretary James Cleverly said, Together, we will ensure that the Kremlin is defeated in every sphere, on land, in the air, and in cyberspace. The UK's support to Ukraine is not limited to military aid. We are drawing on Britain's world-leading expertise to support Ukraine's cyber defenses. Lindy Cameron, chief executive of GCHQ's National Cybersecurity Center, said, The threat remains real, and the UK's support package is undoubtedly bolstering Ukraine's defenses further. 
The SVR, FSB, and GRU have all been active against Ukraine in cyberspace, and of the three Russian intelligence agencies, the GRU has been the most active. Akamai's DNS threat report for the third quarter of 2022 has found that 14% of devices connected with a malicious destination at least once during the quarter. The researchers state, breaking down these potentially compromised devices further, 59% of the devices communicated with malware or ransomware domains, 35% communicated with phishing domains, and 6% communicated with command and control domains. Akamai also notes that phishing campaigns will increase as the holiday season approaches, so this unfortunate trend will in all likelihood see a seasonal upturn. Coming up after the break, Joe Kerrigan looks at the latest round of apps pulled from the Google Play Store. Our guest, Matthias Mado of Secure Code Warrior, looks at why cultivating a positive culture among security and developer teams continues to fall short. Stay with us. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Think about your average team of developers. Now, imagine your security team. 
Do these two teams get along? Do they collaborate constructively? Is there tension? Matthias Madu is co-founder and CTO at Secure Code Warrior, and he shares his thoughts on why cultivating a positive culture among security and developer teams continues to fall short. So the highlights of, of um, why we're falling short today is really that developers and security are not really talking. It has improved over the last 10 years, um, but we need to do better. Security really needs to help developers in today's world. 10 years ago, um, security could just find problems in code, throw them over the wall, and it was up to the developers to fix them. Today, we really have to help the developers. The developers are the people that write the code, and we really need to help them. So security really needs to figure out ways on how they can actually empower and help developers in writing secure code. Is there, is there a historical element to this? I mean, in, in the past, when when coders were being brought up and taught their craft, was security not a priority or was it an afterthought? It does have a, a history here. Ten years ago, there was really a security department and all they had to do was find problems in code. That was their job. Their goal was not to make the code better. The, the goal was not to ship code faster their job was really to find problems in code. So that is really the historical element over here that 10 years ago, um, it was not their job. You know, priorities didn't align because the goal of an organization, the goal of a company is to really make a product that developers love. And to do so, we need to really make sure that we have code that is shipped fast without problems. Otherwise, the customers will not be happy. And so how do you recommend that we do that? I mean, how do we make the security process not be an anchor around their necks, if you will? So first of all, security is outnumbered. If you look at security people per developers, well, there's roughly two security people per 100 developers, which means that they are hugely outnumbered. So the way that we can actually move forward is to bring the developers on the journey. We have to make sure that developers understand that writing secure code will actually be beneficial for themselves in the long run as well. They will have to do less rework. They will have to fix less production issues. So in the long run, it's better for everybody to write secure code. Two security people per 100 developers. Security needs to essentially empower developers with tools, with training, with knowledge on how to do that. And um, they can do that through training, for example, where it really has to be training that is relevant to what they're doing on a day-to-day basis. So they need to work on code that is relatable to what they're doing in the real world. And what about the cultural element here? I mean, how do you ensure that the security folks are collaborating with the developers and that it doesn't become adversarial? From a, from a cultural perspective, it's actually important that, that security understands that they are outnumbered and they, they do not have access to the code. So even if they want to do something, they actually can't. Um, it's the developers. It's the developers that are writing the code. So security has all, all the benefit to make it work with the developers. How do you recommend that organizations get started with this? I mean, it, I'm imagining for for some companies who've been around for a while, this represents a bit of a shift. Oh, absolutely. And the way to get started is to make it a little bit more fun and engaging. If we talk about training and if we talk about security, well, that's not always um, sexy, you know. 
Um, so we, we want to make sure that developers get into it through some more, more enjoyable way. And the way we can actually start is by throwing a tournament where developers and security come together and together they try and resolve problems and they try and fix problems. But in a way that is a little bit gamified and we can actually throw some prizes in there so that ultimately the developers have a good feeling like, hey, you know what, security can be interesting and it, it, it can help the organization. And security, uh, from, from their perspective, they can collaborate with the developers and they are, you know, they can be seen as people that can help the developers. I'm curious, in your experience, has there been a recognition of this? Or are, I'm wondering, are new companies, do startups have an advantage here that they don't have some of that legacy thinking that they can come at this with a fresh approach? Yeah, I really like that. So in general, it is good to take languages and frameworks that are hardened and that contain features and functionality to create secure code from the start. That's a way, you know, that's a way better approach. So absolutely, if you start with coding, take a framework, take a language that already contains a lot of, of good security behavior in it. The unfortunate truth is even if you do that, you quite often rely on open source applications on the open source um, libraries, and you do not know who created them, when they were created, and what the security status is of something like that. So newer companies, they definitely have an edge. Unfortunately, there's still a lot of old software laying around, and we're building on top of old stuff. We're building new stuff on top of old stuff, and we never go back and fix the old stuff. So the unfortunate truth is there's there's plenty of software laying around that maybe it was not even intended to be um, connected over the internet, right? So unfortunately, not, not everything is developed with security in mind, and we still rely a lot on, on legacy software. That's Matthias Madu from Secure Code Warrior. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He is from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also Harbor Labs. Uh, Joe, it is great to have you back. Thanks, Dave. It's good to be back. So over on the Hacking Humans podcast, we talk about a lot of scams. And uh, this is one that caught my attention. This is from the folks over at ZDNet, article written by Danny Palmer. And this is about uh, some Android apps with over 20 million downloads that have been pulled from the Google Play Store. What's going on here, Joe? So it's... About 15 apps, 15, 20 apps that have been pulled down. And in total, they have 20 million downloads. We'll talk about the most downloaded one in a minute. But what's happening here is that these are ads that have a malware package in them that is uh, adware fraud. Mm. So I'm sure everybody who owns a, a, a smartphone, this is an Android phone and I'm an Android user. Yeah. You, you've downloaded an app that has ads based in it, right? Sure. Uh, and you keep getting shown the ads. Well, when you see the ad, the person who wrote the app gets a little cut of money. And if you click the ad, the person who wrote, wrote the app gets a little bit more money, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So some entrepreneurial uh, malware writer said, well, why don't I just click for the user? <laughs> right, we'll, we'll cut out the middleman. We'll cut out the middleman. <laughs> why, right. why waste time waiting for them to click on ads so I can get more money? We'll just click on it for them. Sure. Uh, and this is some really clever malware. First off, it doesn't do anything for like an hour, right? Hmm. So you install it and nothing happens 
Does, or, doesn't do anything bad for an hour. For an hour, so right, you, yeah. Okay. So if there's an app, and there there are apps in here that one is like a task manager, one is a uh, one is a photo manager, a photo vault or something, another is a yeah. QR code reader, okay. camera enhancers. The usual suspects. Yeah, right. <laughs> a flashlight a app. A flashlight app, that's yeah. another one. Yeah. yeah, modern Android operating systems have flashlights included. You don't need a flashlight app anymore. <laughs> right. But maybe you have an older phone where it, it, it works. But... The other thing that's interesting is that, is that the, not only did it wait an hour, but when you were using the phone, it didn't run. It would detect that you were using the phone maybe through, like, the, the gyroscopic sensor or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how it doesn't you – know, the McAfee report might go into that. But if you're using the phone, it would stop clicking on ads for you, which is probably to make your phone more usable. So it's not really all that intrusive for you. Right. Um, but when you put your phone down, it starts clicking on the ads again. Mm-hmm. And making a bunch of of uh, of, uh, of revenue for the for the manufacturer or the app writer. So, so in the background, in it's the background. doing this. You don't know know it's doing this, right? And this has two impacts for the user. Number one, it sucks up your battery life, right? Right. Uh, and number two, it uses data. So if you have a data cap, uh, and like you go over that data cap, and your your phone company charges you per gigabit of of data that you use, yeah, uh, you could wind up paying data usage fees for this app. Right. And one of the one of the uh, apps, in fact, the most downloaded app that I promise we get to, has 5 million downloads and promises to tell you which apps are using the data. <laughs> so I'm sure it doesn't say that, hey, I'm the biggest defender yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chef's kiss. Right. Yeah, touche. Yeah. Oh, wow. Interesting. It's, uh, you know, so you can look at this list of, uh, this full list of apps that McAfee has posted and go out and uninstall them. Uh, hmm. immediately. They're no longer available in the Google Play Store. Google took them out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't know what ad network they were using. It wouldn't surprise me if they were using Google's ad network, mm-hmm. uh, in which case they would, uh, Google would also be profiting from this. But I, I don't I don't know if that's yeah. the case. There are plenty of ad networks there are out there, of networks. varying Correct. degrees of legitimacy. Correct, and, uh... <laughs> yeah. They, they may have been using one of the shady ones, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, uh, on Android, is, is there built-in functionality that you can look at your list of apps and it'll tell you what apps are using your battery or using a lot of data? There is, there is the, uh, yes, the, both of those exist. Okay. Correct. And it is in the operating system. Yeah. 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 So a g- good idea to maybe check in on that from time to time and see if your flashlight app is chewing up a lot of right. both battery and uh, data that perhaps something is amiss. Yeah. One of the most annoying things, I don't know that this is the same kind of thing, but I used to get push notifications from apps and you wouldn't, I wouldn't know where they were coming from. Oh. Um, but, uh, now Android has made a, has, has improved to the point where I was, I was getting, I made the mistake of installing slice because I ordered pizza once with slice. <laughs> okay. Um, and I love pizza. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody that looks at me goes, that guy eats a lot of pizza. Um, okay. <laughs> but slice started giving me push notifications and I went into my permissions and just stopped that from happening. It's right. Android has gotten a lot better with that. Yeah. Yeah. I think they all, I think they all have, you know, I, I yeah. know certainly on, on, uh, iOS uh, as well, you know, there's, there's been a lot of cracking down on that sort of thing. Um, and I, and I think, I think the legit ad networks don't want this to happen as well. No, they don't. They, because what's happening there is they're not, uh, what will happen there is somebody will do the analysis on the effectiveness of, of ad clicks to sales. Right. 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 And they'll say that, okay, this, this ad network doesn't have the same effectiveness of ad clicks to sales as this network does. So I'm right. going to buy over here. Yeah, they're not uh, delivering value. And, and that is the metric 
that the people who buy ads look at, yeah. right, is what percentage of it's called conversion. Yeah. What what can what's my conversion? Yep. Yep. All right. Well, uh, this again is uh, from the folks over at ZDNet. Article written by Danny Palmer, uh, Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. That's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is a production of N2K Networks, proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfand, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Maria Varmatsis, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Catherine Murphy, Janine Daly, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, Simone Petrella, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. 